0: This is Matt Cassidy, the editor-in-chief of Future Sox, and I am here with White Sox general manager Rick Hahn. Rick, thank you for joining us today.
1: Absolutely, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with something topical from the news recently. Uh, This new system that Major League Baseball is going to be putting uh, with Cuba for a posting system. Seems like it's something similar to what is done with Japan. Uh, Is this something that you guys see as something you need to adapt to? Is it going to change anything that you do in the player acquisition space or is there anything that uh, you guys are talking about around this topic yet?
1: I don't think it's necessarily going to change anything in how we go about our business other than provide us with more, potentially more and better opportunities to scout the Cuban player. Right now, obviously we do not, no one sends scouts into Cuba itself and, uh, for purposes of evaluation instead most of that happens while they participate in international tournaments over a number of years uh, or to some extent via videotape. Uh, really this if it goes if everything is ratified and everything goes smoothly and, and uh everyone's on board with how things, Unfold over the coming months and years, I suspect it's going to allow for easier access to the Cuban player for for scouting purposes, which is obviously going to enhance uh, our ability to make decisions. So the, the, the excited about that! Excited more uh, almost from uh, the humanistic side of things, as you sure. heard Jose Abreu and Johan Mancata comment on as, as White Sox players about how it's going to make it uh, easier for players to to let's say, cleanly or more safely get out of, of Cuba and, and provide their talents uh, to Major League Baseball if that's what they decide to do. So that, that part of it is pretty exciting. But in terms of operational uh, changes, I, I don't think it necessarily changes how uh, the, the number of players we perhaps sign out of Cuba, but it will have influence or an impact on, on the scouting evaluations that go into that, I believe.
0: Okay. Uh, sticking with the international world, uh, obviously the last two years in the amateur side of the international space, uh, you were in the, the penalty phase after the, the Louis Roberts signing. Um, you've traded some of the, uh, what I guess we would call right-to-spend international money in exchange for some prospects to, to further bolster the system that way. But having the last two years where you haven't been signing the larger money prospects uh, uh, in, in, that, in that space... Um, Do you feel that gives you a leg up on the 2019 class? Are you, are Marco and you and other people, uh, have they been researching ahead of time over the last two years for a class they knew was coming in two years? Or uh, do you think that gives you any advantage in that space?
1: I don't know if it gives us any advantage, but we we certainly have been preparing for this for a few years, you know, quite frankly, and it's, it's pretty remarkable uh, how early before the actual July 2nd that a player is eligible to sign the, the scouting process begins. So, Regardless of uh, being in the penalty box or not, you are still planning for two, three years out. And, and, and Marco and his staff and our international scouts are really in the process of evaluating 13 and 14 year olds, which is just stunning. Uh, being the parent yes. of a 13 year old, uh, that they're actually being evaluated for pro ball, you know, two, three years down the line. It's it's probably the toughest scouting job in baseball is the international scout job, just because of the age and lack of even physical maturity uh in, and projection involved in so many of the players you're evaluating. So we are uh we are well positioned for nineteen, but it 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 really being in the penalty box didn't influence that because it is a you know two to three year in advance process anyway. Uh and and even while we were in the penalty box, I think you should make clear Marco and his guys are still going through the normal process. They know that we're very, very likely not gonna be players on on, uh, many of the players they're seeing because they'll wind up signing for above 300,000. But that doesn't mean that we won't be able to acquire those players down the road. And we wanna have that that database going back to their amateur days to to call back upon and compare the progress and our projections. Uh, even if they don 't initially become members of the white sox organization that that information, just like all the players that uh, Nick Hostedler and our our domestic amateur scouts turn in uh, is part of our you know transferred over to our our pro scout database and and really follows the player throughout their career
0: okay, and sort of following up on that since you 've been trading away that those those allotments those rights, if you will. Uh, do you feel that you're going into a situation where you would consider uh, going back into acquiring bonus pool space in the future? Is that something that would potentially be part of the plans? Yeah, it, it's conceivable. It, it's Frankly, it's it, it's much more player-driven. Um,
1: we know who Marco is targeting for 19. We know the general price points uh, about uh, what it's going to take to get those players done, and, and if it so happens that – You know, Marco and his guys have conviction on on more players or more costly players than we're allotted in the in that uh, space. Then we'd certainly be open to the to potentially acquiring more if if viable. Uh, You know, as we sit here right now, that's not how things seem to be unfolding in '19. But again, it's still a fluid market, and we'll. We'll, we'll be flexible as we head past uh, even July 2nd of 19. If, if other opportunities arise later, then you can always potentially adjust on the fly.
0: Okay. Uh, one more question on the foreign market before we turn to the domestic side. Uh, I was discussing with some of the other writers the other day that uh, when we talk about international uh, uh, amateur scouting, when I look through what the White Sox have done acquisition wise, it has been probably since. Yu Lin, that I can remember a significant name coming from somewhere other than Latin America in that international space into the White Sox system. Do you guys have any eyes on places in the Far East like Japan or Korea or Australia or some of these other markets, or do you, uh, you know, is that the place that you're looking right now?
1: We do. We do have uh, boots on the ground, for lack of better description, in the Far East uh, that provide us, you know, White Sox owned reports. We also, like every other team, subscribe to you know, statistical and video services that provide us uh, further reinforcement on those leagues as well. So it's not obviously nearly as big of a footprint, uh, as we have in Latin America, as is the case with most clubs, but if we still feel it's important to have our own, our own scouts, uh, funneling information into our system there they would wind up getting cross-checked on premium type guys on on guys that uh you may wind up being posted and and be you know more costly than uh, a six-figure international signing like in the dominican or or venezuela but we we certainly that process begins with white Sox scouts uh recommending the the cross-checking process start
0: okay um now turning more to the domestic side of things With the Latin American pipeline, though, opening back up and with, obviously, the the attempt to build the sustainable talent model that you guys have worked towards, um, has there been any thought given to the White Sox adding one more minor league affiliate, given that more than half the major league teams now are going to have seven domestic affiliates, whereas the White Sox currently at least have six? Has there been any discussion at all about going down that road?
1: We've talked about that a decent amount. We've talked about altering... uh, Our current composition, as well as adding to it, Chris Goetz, our our head of player development, uh, feels comfortable at this time about the number of spots that we have and how we have them allocated between, you know, currently the the Pioneer League and the Fire League. Uh, But it is something that we've at least discussed internally down the road. Uh, It really, a good portion of it depends on your the volume that's coming in, primarily internationally at the lowest levels, but obviously some high school draftees do start there as well. And it's a, it's a bit of a factor of the composition of uh, the type of input you're getting into the system. Uh, having been in the penalty box for a couple of years, having had some little bit more college-heavy drafts in the last few years, we haven't quite felt that a strong need for the additional uh, lower level affiliate, but it's certainly something that that we could uh, pivot to at some point in the future.
0: Okay. And related to that, by the way, as far as I know, uh, as we approach the end of the year here, I've not seen anything official about the PDC renewals for either Canapolis or Great Falls. Uh, maybe I missed it. Do we know if those are uh, if those are a done deal or if something else is happening? If you can even speak about it?
1: Yeah, I don't think we've announced anything on those just yet. But we're certainly uh, we're in conversations with them. And, and as you know, Canapolis is uh, you know, in the process of uh, ownership change as well as. Uh, the new park. breaking yeah. ground on a new ballpark down there. So it's been a real good situation for us over the last uh, several years, and we look forward to that continuing.
0: Okay. So a lot of discussion in the media recently about minor league pay and the fact that, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of people's view, there's a, an issue there with with the disparity, not just between major league baseball and minor league baseball, but just generally how uh, how minor leaguers are paid. And obviously, it's a complex subject. I'm not going to ask you to, to talk about the, anything around some of the legal things going on. But I do know some clubs are doing some things individually to try to kind of enhance the environment that way, whether it's around diet or around housing or anything that can sort of help with that. Uh, are the whites is the White Sox doing anything in that space to to try to sort of improve that world?
1: yeah you you hit the nail on the head not only that i can 't really get into any of the pending legal action or complexities involved in that, but that clubs including the White sox, are doing what we can in a curtain in certain elements of the minor league experience to help make it uh, make it more comfortable and and improve performance of our players and as you said, those two primary areas are in housing and perhaps even more importantly nutrition uh, we've taken over our our uh, or how should I put it? Our, our supply of food it comes only from uh, White Sox sanctioned menus and suppliers, whether at home or on the road, and we've also augmented, uh, you know, the, the, the Outside of the specific per diem that all the players receive, we've actually created a separate account to provide for all the food in in home and road clubhouses well beyond what it was in previous years and that it it It, it was a bit of a antiquated system in terms of how it was run in terms of you have these especially at the lower levels you have uh, these clubbies who obviously have a number of responsibilities, none of which are are simplistic, responsible for feeding. Players on the on the road, and more often than not, that would wind up being some sort of peanut butter and jelly sandwich or some sort of fast food carryout pregame or postgame, which was strictly because of uh, ease, habit, and affordability. All of which was understandable based upon the the structure that was in place. Uh, we're certainly not alone uh, in, in trying to address this and uh, ameliorate it for the players and put them in a much better position to perform uh, by improving the, the, their diets. Um, but we, like other clubs view it as a pretty high priority in, in recent years and, and, one that we're continuing to improve.
0: Okay. Um, wanted to ask you about the kind of the balancing of the prospects in the system a little bit. And what I mean by that is like any system, there are sort of some positions where you have more depth of talent than others. Um, mm-hmm. obviously the current system, for example, is, you know, is, is steep, particularly in outfield talent. Um, You know, whereas there may be other positions where there isn't as much there. Um, What do you think, I mean, at a high, obviously you can't get into specific players necessarily, but at a high level, what is your approach on trying to balance that out? Is it something that you alter draft philosophy or you're looking to maybe do prospect for prospect trades? I mean, what are some different methods you would look at to try to get that talent flow such that you have the the whole field, if you will?
1: I wouldn't want to mess with draft philosophy. I want to get that out of the way first. I still think it's important for us to be true to uh, taking the best player available or the one that we feel has the highest feeling that we're in the best position to maximize, regardless of position. Uh, but certainly, as you look at the system and, and you see certain areas of strength forming, uh, it, I think objectively that would be the outfield and it would probably be the pitching Uh Pitching obviously being a very good area to have as an area of strength and one that no one among any of the 30 clubs is ever going to feel like they have enough. So obviously if we see the opportunity to continue to add quality pitching to the system, we're going to keep doing it even if we feel we already have uh, some quality depth being built up. Long term, uh, you're correct. that There will need to be some sort of rebalancing that takes place uh, simply because uh, although we're – Wise enough or experienced enough to, to or at least not foolish enough to expect uh, everyone to wind up hitting their ceilings if, if a majority of them do or if a fair amount of them do, there just won 't be enough outfield spots uh, at in Chicago for as many quality guys uh, prospects that are coming through the pipe. At some point, uh, once we feel like we're in a position of, of winning on a sustainable basis, we may well have to make some choices to move from one of those areas of strength to redeploy those assets for areas of need. We aren't quite to the point where I can tell you, hey, I know in 2021 or whenever the right time is, we're going to need X. Uh, at this point, the, p- the players are still, you know, developing. They're still potential viable options all around the diamond, and we need to give it a little bit more time before we, we start uh, dealing from strength to address organizational weaknesses. Uh, you know, it, it, we had this conversation recently because we do have clubs that have reached out. We've reached out to others ourselves to, to talk about you know, prospect for prospect deals over the course of uh, this past off season, and if we did come across something that we felt made sense from uh, from a player standpoint, we we would do it. Uh, but we're not yet to the point where we're looking at our uh, looking at our projected 25 man roster, or even at the 40 man roster decisions. Being you know, like, man, we really need to redeploy these outfielders to get more balance in the infield, or something like that. I think that day may come, but we're we're not quite there yet.
0: Okay. That is a perfect lead into my next question, which was about the 40-man decisions because uh, you recently went through that exercise and uh, it seemed the gambles that were taken did pay off and that you didn't lose any uh, 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 other than the minor league side. On yeah. the major league side, you didn't lose any prospects in the Rule 5. Um, how, how are the decisions made around Rule 5 protection as far as the 40-man goes? And I ask that because it's clearly not just about who the best prospects are among the eligible players because you're also factoring in things I'm sure like you know, time to readiness and the risk that other teams may take as far as what, who they would take and, and try to put on a major league roster. Um, exactly. Are there any other factors in that? I'm just sort of curious how the decision-making on that, uh, on that goes at a high level.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, I think in general it's kind of a three-pronged test with the first two being more important than the third. Uh, the first level, the first threshold is do we think this player is going to get taken? which is obviously pretty pretty simple. If you don't think the player is going to wind up getting taken, uh, there's really not too great of a need to protect the player. Uh, the second one is whether they you feel like if they were taken, they're capable of surviving and contributing on a 25-man roster for an entire season. Now, that obviously varies. It's a little different uh, when you're talking about a team selecting the player that's perhaps in a position to win and they're looking to, let's say, round out their bullpen. Or they're looking for a fourth or fifth outfielder who might bring some speed and defense skills that would balance them out. It's a little easier for them, uh, or a rebuilding team to protect a player or carry a player for an entire season. Uh if it's you know, a toolsy outfielder, that's probably not going to go to a contending team that's gonna, you know, be able to hide him for twenty for an entire season uh on their active roster. So again, the first step is is he gonna get taken? The second Sort of a part of the analysis is how likely are they to survive, uh, given their skill set and and where they may be taken at the, at the major league level for the entire season, and then I guess sort of the third element, which I said was a little less important, is how would we feel if in fact they were taken and they did survive for the entire season? Would it lead a void in the system? Would we, would we be you know unable to replace or really hurt from a depth standpoint? Uh, so. Again, you, you take some decisions over the last couple of years. Uh, this most recent year, Zach Thompson—he was someone who we felt probably had the skills to survive. We weren't quite sure if he was going to get taken, uh, and if he was taken, it would be an opportunity for a kid to to establish himself. And we had some right-handed relief depth behind him. So, given the sort of analysis about his readiness and likelihood of getting taken, as well as the organizational depth. We're willing to take a chance on him, and, and frankly, we're, we're thrilled that he was not claimed and that uh, and it wouldn't shock me if he wound up contributing uh, to the 2019 White Sox in some sort of way or form, just not necessarily on opening day or with the restriction of it being not for the entire 2019 season.
0: Okay, I've got two more for you. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm going to ask about analytics, which everybody asks about, but I'm going to take a little bit different angle. There's we've read a lot in the last year about in the minors about use of TrackMan data and similar data with the pitchers, especially talking about you know spin rates and which pitches are more effective and things of that nature. Uh, but you recently made a, a hire, a guy by the name of Matt Lyle, who was kind of in the the I don't know if you want to call it the third party space, and but I mean uh-huh. like he was sort of out in, in not in the typical baseball stream, perhaps. What What is his involvement in things, and is there a sort of a new track being built within the front office as far as the analytics go that's different than what we've already been discussing the last year?
1: Well, I suppose it's – I don't know if I view it as a different track or just an actual evolution of things in that uh, as TrackMan has grown and the availability of large data throughout the minor league system has become more readily available, we've adapted. Uh, we've added Everett Teeford prior to last season on the pitching side, as you alluded to, and who helped work with all of our pitching coaches and, and directly with our arms uh, on uh, the use and analysis and implementation of, of that data and, and how to maximize performance based upon what that data was showing. And this off season, you know, Getsy added Matt Lyle to the organization to do something similar on, on the hitting side. Uh, it's... Uh, Again, it's cliche, but it's really just looking through the other lens of the binoculars and something that works in conjunction uh, with our coaches and our our more subjective evaluation side of things. It's really just putting us in the best position to use the available data to provide the best holistic uh, picture of what a player is currently capable capable of doing and means of, of improving them going forward.
0: Okay. Um, last topic. So when it comes to rebuilds, uh, if, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that a rebuild that is heavier on the offensive side of the game are more likely to be successful than the pitching side. And perhaps that's because of more injury risk with pitchers or whatever the reasoning is. Um, do you have any particular philosophy or does people around you in the front office have any particular philosophy? as to leaning in prospect acquisition and development more one way or the other. Uh, do you do you agree even with the idea that that building on hitters and then acquiring pitches later is more likely to be successful than the other way around?
1: Yeah, I don't I haven't I'm not too familiar with that theory or writing along those lines, but just in general. Uh, from our standpoint, we set out to do two things, get as much premium talent as we could uh, at premium positions, which was from, as we define it, from an offensive standpoint, up the middle, you know, catcher, short second and center, and from a pitching standpoint, guys, you could project to be front-end starters, knowing that, again, not everyone's going to hit their ceiling, and as a result, some of those up-the-middle position players are going to drift towards the corners or down the defensive spectrum, and some of those guys you project to be front-end starters, whether because of performance or attrition or injury or whatever, are going to drift back to deeper into the rotation or the bullpen. So that in general was the acquisition philosophy. I will say that uh, from the standpoint of quote unquote going out and getting the pitching later, that's not only a fairly expensive proposition to do that via free agency, but also one that carries a fair amount of risk as you're dealing with slightly older pitchers as they go through the, uh, you know, later in their career through free agency and into their 30s versus perhaps some sure bets that may be available from the position player side via free agency, but I wouldn't let that potential risk necessarily dictate the entire acquisition strategy at the front of a rebuild. Uh, We knew either way whether we prioritize, if it wound up that we were heavy position player wise based on how what we acquired or what developed or heavy pitcher wise based on what we acquired and what we developed. That ultimately we were going to be moving into the free agent space to, to add and, and, and supplement whatever we've been able to accumulate. So we certainly wouldn't have, uh, certainly did not look out to do one at the expense of others. It was more about to get as much as both as we can and know that in the future, uh, at some point, we are going to have to augment this thing via free agency.
0: Sure. And speaking of free agency, I should probably leave you back to the rest of your job. Uh, that was This is uh, General Manager Rick Hahn of the White Sox, also fellow Trevian Rick Hahn. And um, thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate you taking it out of your day, and I hope uh, you and yours have a happy holidays.
1: You too, Matt. Thanks for having me. Right. Take care.
0: Thanks, Rick.